We still have a lot of Harvey left to go. We sure do. Just half over at best, I'm afraid. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on WLPP 102.9. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We are also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets every day. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from... Bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today as uh, we go to air seconds ago from AP. The National Weather Service uh, finds that Cedar Bayou in Texas has now recorded 51.88 inches of rain. Desi Doyen from, uh, from Hurricane Harvey. That's a lot of rain. Not only that, it is a new continental U.S. record, 51.8 inches. Uh, and the rain isn't over yet. So, uh, no, indeed, Harvey is not over yet. We've got a lot left to go in the storm itself and, of course, in the in the recovery uh, coming up in uh, a little bit. You'll be joining us, Des, with the uh, latest Green News report, our special coverage on Hurricane Harvey. Yes, I will. Uh, and uh, as luck, I guess, would have it, today is the 12th anniversary of the landfall for Hurricane Katrina. Some 1,800 were killed by that devastating storm. We have no idea how many uh, will, in fact, be killed uh, uh, by Hurricane Harvey. We also, uh, as we'll be covering in our Green News report, there's another storm off the East Coast. Uh, Oh, yes, and uh, thousands are dying in South Asia in uh, rainfall that here in the U.S. nobody even has time to cover, much less interest, I suspect. Uh, in covering right around now. A pair of 70-year-old reservoir dams that protect downtown Houston and a levee in a suburban subdivision began overflowing on Tuesday, adding to the rising floodwaters from Harvey that have crippled the area after five consecutive days of rain. At the Attics and Barker Reservoirs, the Army Corps of Engineers 
started releasing water on Monday because water levels were climbing at a rate of more than six inches per hour. Corps spokesman Jay Townsend explained that the move was supposed to help shield the business district from floodwaters, but that also meant that it risked flooding thousands of more homes in nearby subdivisions. Save the businesses, sacrifice the homes, I guess. One homeowner told NBC News yesterday that her house had stayed mostly dry up until authorities began emptying the two flood control reservoirs in Houston. We were fine until they released the reservoirs. So everything started happening really fast this morning. You weren't flooded before then? Not yet, no. The waters were rising, but we weren't flooded before then. So I understand they have to do what they have to do. Houston, but that really triggered and accelerated the process. They have to do what they have to do to save Houston. Engineers began releasing water from those reservoirs to ease the strain on their earthen dams, but the releases were apparently not enough to relieve the pressure after one of the heaviest downpours in U.S. history, according to the Army Corps. Both reservoirs are now at record highs and are now overflowing. In Brazoria County, authorities posted a message on Twitter warning that the levee at Columbia Lake south of Houston had been breached. A levee has been breached, uh, and they uh, tweeted, GET OUT NOW, in all caps. To those uh, who might not have uh, done so already, though, where they go at this point uh, with all the roads all but shut down in the area, that's another question. Since we began reporting on this storm last week, I've been uh, trying to help put into perspective just how much rain we are talking about here. Since the numbers and the amount is simply staggering, it's uh, nearly impossible to really appreciate or understand. I've, I've noted that one inch of rain is roughly the equivalent of one foot of snow. So with some areas uh, ultimately receiving some 50 inches of rain, that could be compared imperfectly to some 50 feet of snow falling. We've noted that enough rain has fallen in the Houston area to supply drinking water to every one of its 6.5 million residents for the next five years, but that still may be an understatement. AP's Seth Borenstein reports today that scientists calculate by the time the rain stops, Harvey will have dumped about 1 million gallons of water for every man, woman, and child in southeastern Texas. Those scientists describe this event as a uh, record-breaking glimpse of the wet and wild future that global warming could bring. While scientists are quick to say that climate change did not cause Harvey and that they haven't yet determined, at least with certainty, whether the storm was made worse by global warming, they do note that warmer air and water mean wetter and possibly more intense hurricanes in the future. This is the kind of thing we're going to get more of, notes Princeton University climate scientist Michael Oppenheimer. This storm should serve as a warning. But will it? As the storm began to brew in the Gulf, warnings were issued that Houston was likely in for a 100-year storm, a storm for which there is only a 1 in 100 uh, chance in any given year of occurring. It was to have been the third such storm in Houston in three years. And then it became a 500-year storm. Yesterday, a 1,000-year storm. Today, Bornstein reports, calculations done by MIT meteorology professor Kerry Emanuel show that the drenching received by Rockport, Texas, where Harvey initially made landfall last Friday, used to be 
maybe a once in 1800 years event for that city. But with warmer air holding more water and changes in storm steering currents since 2010, it is now a once every 300 years event. So, 1,800-year events are now predicted once every 300 years. 100-year storms happen once a year. We are breaking one record after another with this thing, says University of Washington atmospheric scientist Cliff Mass. As of Tuesday, already 15 trillion, trillion gallons of, of rain have fallen on a large area, and an additional 5 to 6 trillion gallons are forecast by the end of Wednesday. That, according to meteorologist Ryan Mao of Weatherbell Analytics, that's enough water to fill all the NFL and Division I college football stadiums more than 100 times over. We talked at length on yesterday's show about the years, decades in fact, of scientific and activist warnings about overdevelopment, lack of flood planning, and lax and unenforced environmental regulations where they even exist in Harris County. That's Houston, the nation's third largest county. The area has been undergoing a population boom over the past two decades, even as climate change has been increasing the severity of storms and flooding and Harris County's own flood control manager in office for 18 years continued for years to completely dismiss those expert warnings, placing the false choice of economic development over environmentally sound infrastructure and otherwise denying that increased flooding in recent years was due to anything more than, oh, you know, just a few freak storms. One man who hasn't spent the last decade denying what is clearly now going on and has been leading the charge to warn about the need for smart infrastructure management and development in a rapidly changing climate is our friend David Roberts of Vox.com. He focuses on politics, climate and energy and the confluence thereof at Vox.com. He has covered these issues for a decade now. Much of that time at grist.org and has contributed to or been featured in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Fast Company, Huffington Post, Outside Magazine, and Wired, among others. Hey, David Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad, good to be here. There is uh, a lot that I want to ask you about, David, uh, including, if time allows, some of these, uh, some of the stories on Exxon's long knowledge and denial of climate change. Uh, at least public denial of climate change. Rick Perry's power grid study over at the Department of Energy. Uh, I had wanted to ask you about that before Harvey sort of disrupted our uh, other ongoing nightmares here. Uh, but you, you've you been covering climate and infrastructure and politics now for, uh, as I said, over a decade. And uh, frankly, like Desi and me and, well, and so many scientists, you've been issuing warnings about it all. Uh, and seeing those warnings ignored, denied by public officials. Stepping back for a second, David, to the big picture here, uh, I'm, I'm just curious, what has been going through your head, uh, maybe your heart, on, on, on sort of a personal or emotional level as we watch this catastrophe in Texas uh, and perhaps soon Louisiana continue to unfold over the past few days? Oh, gosh, a lot. <laughs> I mean... Among other things, I think uh, one of the things that this is really bringing home and that is important to emphasize is that the failure of human beings to plan 
to anticipate and plan very well for climate impacts is in no way uh, anomalous mm-hmm. <laughs> to to human <laughs> character as we understand it. I mean, take climate change completely out of the equation. Mm-hmm you still have a Gulf Coast that's subject to these megastorms ever so often Mm -hmm. and is planning terribly for them. Like the terrible planning and the failure to act in a coordinated, smart way to improve resilience to meet future threats, Mm -hmm. that is a universal of of human existence. And uh, I'm not sure what the the cure for that is, but all, all climate is is sort of the biggest, grandest, uh, example of that, but there mm-hmm. are millions of other examples. Um, uh, but the other thing I thought about is, y- you know, one of these, um, one of the threads you always read in stories about disasters like this is sort of the extraordinary, um, people's extraordinary potential for sort of uh, heroism mm-hmm. and, and altruism and sort of fellow feeling during these things. This these disasters seem like a time when, which, which are very rare in the U.S. these days, a time when we kind of set our petty squabbles aside mm-hmm. and come together to help people. Now, that, you know, anybody who's, who, with a memory of disasters knows that that doesn't last very long. Right, right. But at least it exists, and at least it's sort of inspiring. But, but what, I've, what I've been thinking about is, you know, we experience these disasters as sort of, as sort of, uh, you, you know, as anomalous, extraordinary events. So it sort of happens. We all gather. We watch it. We clean up afterwards. We rebuild, and then we go on with our lives. And a few years passes, and then another one comes along. So we sort of experience them as isolated. What's going to happen when these kinds of crises are striking different regions of the country? regularly mm. or every year or mm. multiple cities at once yeah. you know what if you're having a horrible drought in atlanta at the same time the gulf coast is getting hit by some giant storm or there's a or there's a a, a drought in the southeast too you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so as, yeah. as, as climate exacerbates all this makes these disasters worse i wonder how our capacity for empathy is going to keep up are we really are we as Americans really going to rally behind and support every community that runs into a disaster like this? Because it's just going to happen more and more often. And one of my things I've always worried most about is I, I don't think we're going to be able to maintain our capacity mm. <laughs> for, for empathy on, yeah. the, on, that, on that scale. We're just going to become numb to it. You know, we're going to become numb to the suffering is, is my worry. And it's not an academic question. I mean, right now we're looking at another storm off the East Coast. I haven't uh, looked at the past hour or two, but it was threatening uh, North Carolina and, and South Carolina. Uh, I, and, I, and, and, of course, in Southeast Asia, uh, yeah. I don't know if you've been following yeah. this, but flooding, you know, flooding is killing tens of thousands of people yep. you know, on a massive, on a far more massive scale. And that's going on right now. We barely even know about it. You know, we can barely mm-hmm. get our empathy to our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And what climate demands is that we extend it to everyone across the globe. And that's, to me, just kind of the heart of the challenge. We've been uh, trying, uh, not always easy, but we've been trying to sort of avoid at least partisan politics, at least, you know, for the moment, particularly while 
Rescue efforts are still underway. But is this the right time to talk about the failure of public officials, no matter what party, to to adequately prepare for and mitigate these kind of disasters? I ask because, you know, it's, it's sort of a question whenever, you know, some terrible gun violence comes up. People say, oh, this is not the right time to talk about what to do about guns. Right. Uh, and I've argued that, yes, it's exactly the time to argue about that. What, what is your thoughts on, uh, on that? Is this the right time to talk about what we have done wrong in these cases? Uh, well, you know, those arguments always strike me as a little bit pointless because there is something to it. I mean, there is still loss of life happening. There are people mm-hmm. literally stranded on roofs as we speak. You know, this is, this is, 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 is under, underway. Mm-hmm. So I can see the perspective that says it's weird or insensitive to take these bigger, longer views. But on the other hand, you know, people are going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is the point of talking about whether they should do it or not? Well, We're going to talk about it. And we're already talking about it. We might as well talk about it. And insofar as the suffering can be traced to public decision-making, it absolutely should be traced, right? I mean, that's the whole point of politics. Well, that's what it seems like to me, particularly since it's so easy to uh, just move on to other things. As sort, you know, as, as as soon as everything is well, at least you know everybody is safe and uh, the the rebuilding process begins, people move on to the next thing. Your piece at Vox dot com today uh, explains that climate change uh, did not cause Harvey but that it's a huge part of the story. You cite nine points that, it's, you, that you say it's not too early to discuss and to know uh, about this record-breaking storm. Let's, let's start with uh, what you describe as the malformed question of whether or not climate change caused Harvey. Why is that a misleading and bad question, Dave? Oh, I've tried to explain this so many times, and I don't know if I've ever really gotten it right, but, but it is a mistake to think of climate change as a force mm-hmm. or an actor or an agent that does things. Think of, think of uh, by way of analogy, think about erosion. Mm-hmm. You know, you see an anthill one day and you come back the next day and it's smaller. And somebody asks, what caused that? Mm-hmm. Well, erosion caused that. But if you dig down a little bit, mm-hmm. that doesn't really make any sense. Erosion is just a description of what happened, right? right? What caused it is wind, right, and mm-hmm. friction, physical forces. So what causes storms is not climate change. What causes storms is moisture in the air and weird, you know, high and low pressure systems, all the familiar things that meteorologists are familiar with. Those things are still causing the storms. All climate change is is a description of the fact that there's more water in the air, right? There's more water in the air than there used to be. There are more of these high and low pressure systems than there used to be. Climate change is descriptive. It's not a causal agent. It's a description of what's happening. So what's causing Harvey is the same thing that causes all other storms. There's no extra force mm-hmm. involved here. Do you know what I mean? There's I no do. extra agent or entity involved. It's the same thing that causes every storm. It's just those things have all been heightened a and, little and, bit. They're and, all just a little bit more than they used to be. And, and similarly, uh, when we go, we've had uh, a few years without any uh, big storms, at least big storms hitting the U.S., that also doesn't uh, prove the, the, the opposite, that, oh, climate change doesn't exist. Look, we haven't had any storms hit the, uh, hit the U.S. in a few years. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I saw a great post today where somebody was making the point, you know, climate change is... Um, 
is, is, is warming the air, and so there will be more moisture in the air, but it's also affecting um, the circulation of, of, of air currents. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely possible that you could get more moisture in the air, which makes things more prone to storms, but, but, but air currents shifted away from the area, which makes storms less likely, so you end up with the same equilibrium, mm-hmm. right? Visibly, the evidence is the same, but that doesn't mean there's not climate change involved. Climate change is involved in everything. It's a descriptive term. The climate is changing. So, so the fact that two of these forces might go different directions and balance each other out, that's not evidence that climate change is not involved. Climate change, again, is not a causal agent. It's a description of the fact that the climate is changing. So, you know, there aren't, there aren't weather phenomena, phenomena where mm-hmm. you can say, oh, that's climate change, right? But that isn't. That is, but that isn't. It's all the climate. It's all the same climate, and the climate is changing. We had uh, Michael Mann, uh, climate scientist, meteorologist, on this show. Uh, we've had him on a lot over the years, but we had him on, I think it was a year or so ago, when we were in the middle of the, the, the worst of the drought out here in California. And uh, basically, uh, as it started to you know appear, and as we uh, as we discussed the uh, the idea, you know the, the idea began to emerge that weather systems themselves seem to be changing, and the pattern of weather, and and you know, it, and I've I've seen this a lot in the in the past few days that this storm Harvey in past years likely would have just moved on, would have dissipated, uh, but for these, uh, what do they call them, these blocking patterns that are keeping some of this weather in mm-hmm, place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seems like this is an element of climate change that, do we know where the science is on this? Have we yet determined is climate change itself uh, leading to these drastic changes in what we have felt have been our weather patterns for for decades. Well, I mean, as as man will be the first to tell you, I think that's probably the most speculative part of mm-hmm. the sort of climate change Harvey connection is is the the effect uh, that. You know, I want. I'm trying to stop saying climate change is doing things, right? Because right. I'm, I'm realizing how much mischief that causes. So I'm just going to start saying heat energy, right? Okay. That's what's causing things is the atmosphere is holding more heat energy. And as you hold more heat energy, you know, you don't have to know much physics to know if you squeeze more energy in the same, right, same mm-hmm. space, things move around more, things get crazy. So, so but whether that's affecting the specific sort of, uh, these specific currents that shape these specific hurricanes in this specific region of the world is is somewhat speculative. So, I mean, and, and this is what Manuel says frequently, is mm-hmm. you can't really say that climate change is doing X, Y, Z to weather patterns. It's all, the, the effect on weather patterns is going to be very idiosyncratic place to place. And, it's, and, and that's just as true of weather disasters, too. Like, the story about why Houston wasn't better prepared for this is very idiosyncratic. It's not some sort of generic ignorance about climate change. There's a lot of specific specific factors, a lot of history at work, a lot of weird geology at work. So it's always an individual story. It's just that all it's just that climate change is just turning up the volume on all the parts of the story. Well, right. So the story would still be happening. We'd still be mm-hmm. you know, you'd still have the story of storms and poor 
preparation and natural disasters and all the rest of it, we're just turning up the volume on it slowly but surely. Well, there is a lot of denial about climate change uh, in in Houston uh, among the public officials there, it seems to me. You write about the difference between mitigating climate change and adapting to it. Uh, since that seems to be where, you know, some have moved the goalpost to of late. Uh, I'm going to guess you're familiar with that fantastic article last December uh, by the uh, by the Texas Tribune and ProPublica. We discussed it in detail on yesterday's show, which highlighted this uh, public official. Let me help make him famous. His name is Mike Talbot. Uh, he was in charge <laughs> of flood control in Houston for 18 years, even while seemingly denying climate change and otherwise suggesting that those scientists and activists, I guess that includes people like you, David Roberts, uh, who were who were concerned uh, about the, uh, the the flood situation that Houston seemed to be uh, facing, that they were that they were anti-development. Uh, that those people, those giving those warnings. Your thoughts on that, on him, and frankly, whether that attitude among public officials who are in charge of environmentally related infrastructure is all that unusual? Am I unfairly uh, uh, pointing out Mike Talbot, uh, David Roberts? Uh, well, there's a mix of things. I think if you're going to identify an attitude among urban public officials mm-hmm. that is sort of wildly biased in favor of, of, of uh, development, <laughs> you know, right. especially, you know, it, it, it's funny, it's a totally different story over here on the West Coast, as you know, where we can't build anything, you know, where we're having this housing crisis because mm-hmm. we can't add housing. You know, in your sort of Floridas, your Miamis and Houstons and whatever, it's the opposite. They're just building everything they can, everywhere they can. And, yes, they're all very, you know, sort of institutionally and by habit and by law extremely biased in favor of developing, including Mm -hmm. in these vulnerable areas. But, again, I have to stress, like, that's, you know, climate is turning up the volume on that, too, but that that, that predates climate change like go read mike grunwald's book about about the everglades and you know uh, you'll see that that failure to adapt to natural features of the landscape is 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 a long-standing problem in these areas mm. it's just going to get worse so for instance like i mean i mean houston's poorly prepared for for floods they've had four or five in the last however many years, and they've been poorly prepared for all of them, even the ones that were of perfectly normal strength, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so let's just say that ignorance and short-sightedness are definitely uh, involved in failing to prepare for climate change, but they're not unique to climate change at all. Like failure and short-sightedness are, uh, are the rule... <laughs> the rule rather than the exception, well, I think. Well, you know, the, the rule, but it's also, uh, when I started this with questions about, you know, sort of the frustration, it is so frustrating, and I, I suspect you feel the same, you know, watching uh, all of these things that we see, uh, both scientists and activists who, you know, try to stop this or that, try to stop that development, prevent that pipeline, who are then proven right time and time again but it takes years and disasters and uh you know cost of precious lives before that becomes clear and even then 
it seems like public officials don't change uh, the way they go about this. Uh, let me. I want to get in a, f- a few more uh, points here from your, your piece. You, you cite the comment from 2007 from the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, John Holdren, who would then become White House science advisor for the Obama administration. He told the New York Times in 2007 that, quote, we basically have three choices, mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. We're going to do some of each. The question is what the mix is going to be. The more mitigation we do, the less adaptation will be required and the less suffering there will be. Um, how does that put the idea and, uh, and the costs of mitigation versus adaptation into the proper perspective as you see it? Well, I think the best thing it does is, is that, um, you know, I feel like in a lot of arguments over climate policy, over whether to pass some climate or clean energy policy, there's sort of an unspoken presumption that the alternatives are this new policy and whatever effects it might have, whatever costs it might have, or nothing, right, or Mm -hmm. the status quo. But what Holdren is making clear is the status quo going forward in coming decades is not an option, Mm -hmm. right? Things are changing. So we are going to do some of this mitigating, reducing emissions, and we're going to do some of this adjusting to the changed weather patterns, or we're going to suffer. Those are the only three choices. Staying, keeping things as is, mm-hmm. is not a choice. But, 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 you know, one thing Holdren used to go on to emphasize, uh, which I think is a very important to emphasize, is that mitigation, which is, which is the nerdy term for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and adaptation are not equivalent they're not the same thing. They're not equally effective at preventing suffering. They're not equal in cost. You know, sort of make a long story short, preventing greenhouse gas emissions is way, way, way cheaper <laughs> than, than trying to surround all your coastal cities with seawalls mm. and build you know, drainage systems capable of draining off 50 inches of rainfall mm-hmm. in in three days, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just preventing some of that from happening is so much cheaper, but also, also, and this is also important, is adaptation spending benefits, in, the benefits are entirely local. Like, if I'm in Houston, or if I'm in New York City, say, and mm-hmm. we're going to build a seawall to prevent another Sandy, the only people who benefit from that seawall are the people in New York City. Whereas, mm-hmm. if I prevent a, a ton of greenhouse gas emissions... That benefits everybody mm. in the globe because that greenhouse, that ton of greenhouse gas emissions would have gone up and mixed into the atmosphere and affected the entire globe. So preventing it, I, I benefit the entire globe. In other words, mitigation is is egalitarian mm. and, and it's uh, and it's universal. It's altruistic almost in a way that adaptation is not. Adaptation is is ultimately selfish. It's let's pull up the drawbridges and build walls and protect ourselves. And right? So they're not, those are not equivalent things. You can't just say, ah, instead of mitigating, let's adapt. It's not like you're, you're uh, pursuing the same goal. Adapting is, is giving up and raising the drawbridge, right? It's not to say we can get away without adapting. Yeah. Obviously, you know, it's I not it's obvious. It, Obviously, we have to adapt to the world as it is, but, but to, to present that as an alternative to mitigation, I think, is just insane. You're right, and it's not one or the other, but that seems to be where at least uh, our our 
current administration is going. Well, we'll adapt to it. Uh, mitigation, never heard of it. David, I, I'm running a little long here, but I want to ask you uh, very quickly about uh, about this this Exxon story and about this Rick Perry story. So sit tight for one quick second. I'll take a quick break. We'll come back and uh, hit those last couple of questions with David Roberts of Vox.com right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Well, I know you've got your own version of the truth. There's only three things left now that I can do. Deny, deny, deny. Yep. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with our friend David Roberts from vox.com. David, I uh, got uh, just a, a, another few minutes here very quickly. I want to ask you about what I had hoped to ask you about before Harvey struck, uh, which was a couple of stories, uh, one concerning Exxon. And I think it is no small amount of irony that um, <laughs> these uh, fossil fuel companies that helped uh, fuel, frankly, what we're looking at right now in, in Texas and Louisiana. Uh, oil prices are now shooting up thanks to, uh, Harvey. So they're, uh, they're, they're, they're both causing the problem and profiting from it. That in and of itself is frustrating. But, uh, back in 2015, uh, Inside Climate News and the LA Times published a pair of articles, uh, about Exxon showing that internal documents, uh, going back to the 1970s, reveal that they knew about climate change, they knew about global warming, and yet they, as you describe at uh, Vox.com, consistently misled the public and investors about it. And they responded by saying, well, hey, look at all of our documents and make up your own mind. That did not apparently work out well, David Roberts, Roberts for <laughs> Exxon, because people you know, like you and others actually took them up on it. What did you find? <laughs> yeah, it was quite, amu- uh, it's quite amusing. As I, as I wrote in the blog post, I was like, if you're a company, don't issue reading-based challenges to, <laughs> to, a, to a group of people composed entirely of nerds. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of this is a little bit silly. Like, none of this stuff, you, you know, basically, like, before this study was done, it was all out there in the open. We could all see what was going on. And what mm-hmm. was basically going on was Exxon had a science program that did original peer-reviewed science in climate change areas and was respected by all accounts. And, of course, those peer-reviewed, those scientists they employed, those guys didn't deny climate change. They're scientists. Right. And then in their internal documents where they're sort of discussing strategy and stuff with managers, they didn't deny climate change in those internal communications. They knew it was real. They knew they had to plan for it. They knew they needed some sort of, they needed some sort of you know, approach to it. Mm-hmm. 
it's just in these advertorials. So, so Exxon used to buy an advertorial, which is sort of a big ad mm-hmm. that is sort of mimics an editorial, sort of a company's editorial. Right. It used to buy one of these in the New York Times every Thursday for from like 1978 through like 2007 or something like this. Every every week mm-hmm. on the New York Times op-ed page would effectively be an Exxon editorial. And those editorials, the public-facing communication from Exxon, were full of doubts and uncertainties and the sort of looming threat uh, of, of poverty if we dare to cut back on fossil energy. And just mm. all the classic, all the classic denial right. talking points. And all that stuff was on public record before these two nerds sat down <laughs> to read it all and do this study. It's not right. like... This was all hidden. This is just sort of makes it, this sort of quantifies it. Uh, Exxon, what Exxon was trying to get at when it said, go read all the documents, is they're trying to play a game. Right. When they are in serious discussions with policymakers or they're talking with serious people, they show this science they did, which they really did. It's, really, right. it's, it's real and legitimate science. They're like, oh, look, we, how, could you, how could you say we're deniers? Look at all the science we did. You know, it's talking out of both sides of their mouth. So... So all the researchers did is just quantify it and say, look, here's one side of your mouth and here's the other side of your mouth. And and if you do that, David Roberts, if you say one thing and write another, then, uh, well, then, then I guess you're a hypocrite, but you're not uh, legally accountable. ExxonMobil, or at least Exxon at the point, was a, was a public company. Uh, they have to answer to uh, shareholders and to the SEC, and there are certain uh, laws that regard fraud. And now we're up to, what is it, uh, 17 different attorneys general are now uh, investigating whether they uh, yeah, yeah. misled there's, the public? There's investigations going on from the SEC, from attorneys general, their lawsuits. Um, you know, and this is all, this all comes to, it's not going to be a clean... There's not going to be any aha moment or eureka moment where it's sort of exposed, Exxon really did this. Mm-hmm. It's all a matter of judgment, which is, given what they knew, does their public-facing communications, you know, it's sort of fuzzy to even call them lies. They're very misleading, mm-hmm. right? But the whole point was to be fuzzy and vague and right. make it sound uncertain, right? So, so the question some judge is going to ultimately have to decide is, is that fuzzy, misleading communication tantamount to fraud, right? Tantamount mm-hmm. to misleading the public and investors about Exxon's financial prospects. And that's, you know, that's a, it's not a very, it's not a clear-cut question, but I do think that if a judge found against Exxon in this case, mm-hmm. it is, to me, shaping up to be a sort of spectacle Maybe not on the scale of the trial of the tobacco CEOs. Remember that, mm-hmm. but 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 a similar, I think at least potentially a similar kind of breakthrough moment where the public hears this and finally takes it as you know an unambiguous signal that oh these guys are lying oh this is real oh this is really happening a lot a lot in a lot of the same way that kind of the CEOs of the tobacco companies getting strung up really sort of solidified it for people. Oh, this is real. These guys really did something wrong. I think it has the potential to be that kind of moment. But, of course, that it depends on the judge, depends on the attorney general, depends on a lot of things. Yeah, and it, and it depends on and it depends on what is now a, 
a packed and stolen Supreme Court, ultimately, I'm yeah. afraid. Yep. Uh, one yep. more question for you, David Roberts. Uh, in, in yet uh, another challenge uh, of sorts here where the uh, challengers may not have realized what the results would be, uh, the Energy Department, now led, led by uh, uh, genius Rick Perry, uh, asked for a study after he had essentially charged that renewable energy was a was a danger to the nation's power grid, uh, that it was uh, serving to help kill old King Cole. Very briefly in the minute or so we have here, what did that study find? How did that work out for Rick Perry? Well, uh, it's it, it's it's hilarious because someone, Rick Perry, or someone under him, made the made the creditable admirable decision to let DOE staffers more or less do this mm-hmm. thing the way they do things and right. not to interfere uh, in it. And so they did it, and then they leaked a draft of it, and it found um, we're integrating renewables just fine. Like coal and nuclear plants are shutting down, yes, but plenty of other plants are coming online. We have more fuel diversity than we've ever had. There's no sign of of any problems with reliability. In fact, the grid is more reliable now than it, than it was in previous decades. So basically, the, the, the substance of the report said, there's no problem here. We're, we're fine. Everything's going fine. Coal and nuclear plants are shutting down, but that's fine. Like, there's no problem. But and then you have, on top of that, this sort of extremely thin veneer of political language that Perry or somebody at DOE added later, basically pretending as though the study hadn't said any of that and just saying, clearly we have a problem here. You know, our coal and nuclear plants are shutting down. Clearly it's a problem, and we have to do something about it. But, but, but it's so clear to anyone who takes five seconds to read the study itself that the study agrees with all the other studies, which have all found the same thing, which is that there's no problem here. Coal and nuclear plants can retire, and, 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 and reliability will be just fine. So it's sort of like... Their decision to do the right thing by this study has sort of uh, blown up in their face. Yeah. Maybe, they, maybe they'll learn not to do not to do the right thing anymore. They'll, or they'll, they'll learn their lesson. Or they'll just rely on the fact that, uh, you know, luckily for them, it's only nerds like you, David Roberts, uh, that read these reports, and uh, they can go out and tell the public something completely different. I guess. Yeah, but we do I, have. I don't think it's going to affect anything one way or the other. Honestly, they're still going to do what they were going to do. Yep. Uh, David Roberts, uh, always great talking to you, my friend. Uh, find his uh, work at Vox.com and on the Twitters at DRVox. If you want to think of it as Dr. Vox, that's probably fine by David. Uh, David, always great talking to you, my friend. Uh, we'll do it again soon, uh, hopefully not when a disaster strikes. Yes, uh, fingers crossed. All right, thanks, Brad. Thank you, brother. See his article today at Vox, Climate Change Did Not Cause Harvey, but it's a huge part of the story, nine things we can say about Harvey and climate. All right, we've got a few more things to say about Harvey after this break with our Green News Report special coverage and uh, maybe even a bit more about Exxon. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com 
with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Desi Doyen, uh, two shows in a row now, all Harvey. I know, I, I know. Well, and it's, uh, I, I think it, it merits it. It does. Well, it's the, uh, it looks like it's going to be the worst disaster, at least in terms of cost. Yes, not in terms of lives, because, of course, as we mentioned before, that that was the great 1900 storm in Galveston, Texas. That was the greatest cost in lives. But yes, I believe I believe that when all is said and done and it's going to take years, that Hurricane Harvey is going to be the costliest disaster in pretty much almost every other measure. Costliest in US and uh, certainly most rainfall. All right. Yes. Uh, more on that in our latest Green News Report. It is one measure of how life has changed here that, like these waters, the standard for what constitutes an emergency keeps rising in this city. Green News reports special coverage. Hurricane Harvey causes long-term, widespread devastation across Houston and southeast Texas. And it's not over yet. That story and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Joyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment we've pledged our full support as texas and louisiana battle and recover from this very devastating and historic storm there's probably never been anything like this you got that right mr president on several counts this is your green news report Okay, Desi Doyen, I must admit the first I heard of uh, Hurricane Harvey, then uh, Tropical Depression Harvey, was from you on this Green News report. You were earlier than most. Where are we now in this ongoing disaster as we go to air today? Well, Houston remains paralyzed by nonstop rainfall and flooding caused by Hurricane Harvey, which made landfall as a Category 4 hurricane on Friday near Port Aransas, Texas. Harvey now ranks among the worst storms ever to hit the United States. Historic flooding has turned Houston, the nation's fourth largest city, into an inland sea. At least nine deaths have been confirmed so far, and it is not over yet. National Weather Service forecasts that the slow-moving storm could dump another two feet of rain before it's done. Another two feet of rain on top of the, what, about two and a half feet that have already fallen? Yes, these are unheard of numbers. Yep. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has activated the entire Texas National Guard, and officials say first responders have rescued more than 3,000 people so far. FEMA estimates up to 30,000 people may require emergency shelters. In a Sunday press conference, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner defended the decision to not issue mandatory evacuation orders, saying it wasn't clear where to send people to. There was a lot of conversation about the direction in which Hurricane Harvey was going to go. No one knew which direction it was going to go. 
So it's kind of difficult to send people away from danger when you don't know where the danger is. That's true. That said, we know that the danger was not to the north. And had they sent people to the north, they might have been able to get out of harm's way. But logistically, it would have been difficult. Back in 2005, during the evacuation for Hurricane Rita in Houston, more people died in the massive traffic gridlock than from the storm itself. Houston's freeways serve as flood channels. Thousands could have been trapped on the freeways when the storm arrived. True, and since nobody really knew that the storm was happening at all until about 48 hours before it ended up making landfall, Yeah, I can't see how they would have gotten Houston's millions of people out of there in time or safely. And keep in mind that these floodwaters are polluted. The Houston region is a hub for the petrochemical industry with extensive pipelines, refineries, chemical plants, and heavy industry. All of those facilities were inundated along with sewage treatment plants. Regarding climate change, it will take time for scientists to determine the specific influence of global warming on this specific storm. But in general, climate scientists say global warming intensifies extreme weather impacts, like more frequent extreme rainfall events and rising sea levels elevated Harvey's storm surge. And it cannot go without notice that both scientists and activists have been warning, have been begging Houston officials and Harris County officials for years to do something about these flood concerns, the precise concerns, sadly, that have uh, now come home to roost in Houston. Yes, building codes, road construction and flood mitigation in the Houston flood prone area were not keeping up with the blistering pace of home building and real estate development. Developers shortchanged flood mitigation regulations and paved over some 30 percent of the regional wetlands that once provided natural flood control where the switchgrass would have soaked up uh, a lot of this water in any event all of that is gone it's now concrete most houston residents also don't have flood insurance fema director brock long on cnn on sunday was blunt about the region's long road to recovery fema is going to be there for years sir um this this disaster is going to be a landmark event. We're setting up and gearing up for uh, the next couple years. And it's not just Houston. As we go to air, another tropical storm is brewing off the coast of South Carolina. And over in South Asia, at least 1,200 people have died from monsoon flooding across India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. 1,200 people? So far. If there's any bright side at all to what's going on in Houston is so far... The smaller than expected death count. That said, Houston's police chief told the AP on Monday that he's, quote, really worried about how many bodies we're going to find. Indeed. For much more on this story and all of the others we could not get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. The death toll, Desi Doyen, has uh, now been updated to at least 13. Wow. Although, as I mentioned, uh, I think that's going to get far, far worse. I cannot even imagine uh, what it is like for uh, some of these folks who are right now uh, still trapped, even as we uh, even as we speak here uh, in floodwaters that uh, continue to rise. There was uh, a report yesterday, didn't know yet what to make of it. Um, Emily Atkin at New Republic reported that residents of Houston's industrial 
Fence line communities are reporting strong gas and chemical-like smells coming from the many refineries and chemical plants nearby. Brian Paris, an activist at the grassroots environmental justice group Tejas, so don't listen to him because, you know, he's an activist. Um, He lives and works in Houston's East End. He says, I've been smelling them all night, off and on this morning. Some residents were reportedly experienced headaches, sore throats, scratchy throats, and uh, eyes and so forth. That chemical smell, we did not know what it was yesterday. Uh, And, of course, residents can't escape this, by the way, because floodwaters have overtaken the city, so they can't get away from this smell. We didn't know what it was yesterday. We have a better idea of that now today. Yeah, it does seem to be, uh, uh, based on Washington Post's reporting, ExxonMobil acknowledged on Tuesday that... Oh, it's Exxon again. Yeah, that Hurricane Harvey damaged two of its refineries, causing the release of hazardous pollutants. That was made in a regulatory filing with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. That's after... After lots of people complained on Twitter about that unbearable chemical smell that was wafting over parts of Houston. Um, so the company says in those regulatory filings that a, uh, a, a tank what, that was sank in heavy rains and it dipped below the surface of, uh, of the oil and the other materials stored there, which the company declined to identify what the chemical was. And that caused what the company called unusually high emissions, especially of volatile organic compounds which is a regula- a category of regulated chemicals. Um, so this is at their Baytown refinery in Houston. That's the second largest refinery um, in the country. And um, so they're going to have to make repairs, but they can't do that, of course, yet until the storm is actually over and the flood waters have passed. So in the meantime, you know, as you shut down and potentially reopen these refineries, it's known that there will be tons of releases of toxic chemicals, mm-hmm. airborne and water. So, um, you know, they're flaring off a lot of these chemicals. And that's that's what they do when they can't take them anywhere. And it's safer for the public to burn them off than it is to try to do anything else with them. So they're smelling them. They can't get away. It's uh, it's in the air. It's in the water that they are also many of them living in at this point. Yeah. Hopefully no one is trying to wade through that water. Hopefully they don't have to to escape. But, yeah, we're talking about, you know, carcinogens. You know, benzene, which is, you know, that's deadly um, if you get too much of it. Um, you know, benzene and uh, anhydrous ammonia was also a reported chemical leak, a ton of stuff that's that's just really bad. And this is the kind of sacrifice zone of the people who live in this area around these refineries on the Gulf Coast from Houston to to New Orleans. Those folks are basically allowed to live in extremely polluted air. Sacrifice zones is how you describe them. Yeah, yeah these are these uh, these are disproportionately low income and minority communities that live next to these uh, to these power to these refineries and these uh, chemical plants and so forth. Uh, Donald Trump. Remember him? Uh, he showed up uh, today somewhere in Texas. He was in Corpus Christi, right. um, which was actually a good thing because, of course, Houston is still an active rescue and recovery area. So he would have been way, way, way too uh, impactful on the efforts going on there. So he mm-hmm. was in Corpus Christi and 
to, to, you know, give encouragement to, you know, do a live photo op with the governor of Texas and talk about, oh, this is what we're doing right now. However, what I thought was funny was uh, one of the um, pool reporters for mm-hmm. the Dallas Morning News, who was basically reporting for everybody, um, was really not having any of it. Um, this pool reporter said after the briefing, Trump did an impromptu rally type speech in front of a few hundred Trump supporters who somehow managed to know exactly where the president was doing the briefing. This is the pool reporter writing this. He stood on a raised platform of some type. I couldn't tell if it was a stepladder or not, but he was not on a truck. He spoke into a microphone. He said, I love you. You are special. We are here to take care of you. It's going well. And here's some more of what he yeah, said. Yeah, it sounded is- like a, a, a campaign rally. We're here to take care. It's going well. And I want to thank you for coming out. We're going to get you back and operating immediately. Thank you, everybody. What a crowd. What a turnout. What a crowd. What a turnout. People who are suffering from a devastating hurricane. Well, anyway, the pool reporter finishes up with reporters heard no mention of the dead, the dying or displaced Texans. No expression of sympathy for them. The message was services are coming and Texans will be okay." That was what happened today in Corpus Christi. Fantastic. Hell of a guy. Hell of a president. Uh, What a mess. Uh, Desi Doyen, thank you very much uh, for both the Green News Report and your producing today as every day. My thanks also to my guest, David Roberts of Vox.com, and to you, our listeners, for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite uh, podcast site like iTunes, where we hope, uh, in any event, you'll uh, leave a good review for us, make it a little easier for others to find us as well. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to become active supporters of the Bradcast and bradblog.com and all that we try to do in both places. All right, I think that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.